If you would turn to me, turn with me to the uh, book of Leviticus. This is our third and final sermon in the book of Leviticus. We'll be looking at chapters 17 through 27, quite a chunk of text this morning. And for the public reading of the Word of God, I want us to look at chapter 24. And so we'll read that chapter together, beginning in verse 1. That's Leviticus 24. And would you please, if you are able, stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be for a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold, Before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place, since it is for him a most holy Portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. Now, an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. 
Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this marvelous book that you've given to the church. And would you today anoint the preaching of the word that it may go forth in power. We are weak. You are strong. So bless the preaching and the hearing of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Leviticus is the crown jewel of the Pentateuch, and it recounts Israel's journey into the presence of God through the ministry of the tabernacle. This final section of Leviticus, if you've had time to read it this week, is obviously about holiness. God is holy. Now, his holiness is a big problem for his people who were to enter in to his presence. How could we ever walk with the God who is holy? The deaths of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, back in chapter 10, are of monumental importance in understanding the God to whom we draw near. The idea of holiness among the people of God was first brought up way back in chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Two times that text tells us, be holy for I am holy. Now, we need to listen to that command because it's going to be reiterated in the chapters of this section of Leviticus four times. Be holy for I am holy. Let that command cast its long shadow over your soul for a moment. Israel journeyed deeper and deeper into the presence of God through the Levitical way. And as they journeyed deeper into his presence, they had an encounter of the holiness of God in a deeper and a deeper way. So in the presence of the holy, Israel came to know something about themselves. And that is, something must be done about their sin, and they are powerless to do anything about it themselves. The deeper the presence of God we experience, the nearer we draw to Him, the more we see and feel and know the holiness of God. That's why as we draw near to Him, oftentimes we become very self-conscious and more acutely aware of our sin and of our shortcoming. 
That was Peter's experience on the boat in Luke 6 that Lee just preached about not long ago when the fish filled the net and he came to the realization of who Jesus really is. And he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When we come into the holiness of God, I think if we begin to understand the holiness of God rightly, we have a tendency to withdraw, to retreat into the darkness, but we should instinctively run to the light because the Scripture tells us that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin." There is atoning blood between us and the God who is holy. In the light of his presence, we are cleansed. The goal laid out in Leviticus of walking with God will not be fully accomplished until the consummation of all things in Christ. And so if you look at the movement of the book of Leviticus from the beginning to the end, you'll see that Israel is made clean and God has called them to be holy. And to be holy, they must go deeper and deeper and deeper into the presence of God. This goal will not be fully accomplished until the consummation of all things. So what I want us to do today is look at what this text tells us about holiness, at least some of the things it tells us about holiness. And I would have you to notice first the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Leviticus, as we said, is a journey deeper and deeper into the presence of God. If you've uh, noticed in Leviticus... As one approached nearer to the place of God's dwelling, the holiest place in the tabernacle, the things and the spaces in the tabernacle became more holy. They were sanctified or made holy by the presence of God. To to transgress too closely to the holy was a death sentence, as we saw in the sons of Aaron. Now, in this section of text that we're looking at today, we are commanded once again to be holy, for God is holy. I want you to look at chapter 19 in verse 2. In the second part of that verse, he says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, I want you to hear it once again in chapter 20, verse uh, 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. When God says, you should be holy because I am holy, the revelation that we have there is of the holiness of God. God is making himself known as holy. When God says he's holy, what does that mean? He's revealing something about his divine nature, what kind of being God is. 
God is holy. The holiness of God in this text is revealed, especially, uh, well, in all of it, but especially from chapters 18 through 22 by a repeated, repeated formulas. For example, I am the Lord. And we heard that, if you heard it echoed a few times in our scripture reading, you're right. But look, uh, you can see it then in chapter 18, verse 4. It's going to be the first occurrence in the last part of that verse where he says, uh, uh, or verse 5, the last part, I am the Lord. Now, that phrase, I am the Lord, is the divine name that's being revealed. And in chapters 18 through 22, it is used 18 times. And so as you read the text, you should just mark those places. Now, another thing you'll see is, uh, is this phrase, I am the Lord your God. You can see it two times in this text, in 18.2 and in 18.4, he says, I am the Lord your God. Throughout these chapters, that is repeated 12 times. Be holy for I am holy is repeated four times. I am the Lord who sanctifies you is repeated eight times. Warnings against the profaning of the name of God are repeated six times in this text. The text is revealing the kind of being that God is. God is holy. Now, one of the problems in defining what holy is is that the Bible speaks of it in two ways. There's the idea of moral perfection, and then there's this other idea, the idea of being separate or of being other, other than we are, in a class of its own, something that is uh, perhaps transcendent. Now, most of us, when we hear the word holy, we probably think of moral purity. It means just absolute perfection. But that is a secondary meaning of the word holy in Scripture at best. When the seraphim in Isaiah 6 sang, they did not say moral perfection, moral perfection, moral perfection. They said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the primary meaning of holiness in relation to God is that he is separate. He is uncreated. He is in a class of his own. He is other than we are. God is eternal. God is mystery. God is holy. And so without that first meaning of holiness, this secondary meaning of moral perfection can never make sense. The whole matter of holiness, then, is complicated in this text by the fact, as we read in chapter 19, verse 2, and in verse 26, that God commanded Israel to be holy, for he is holy. We should feel the weight of that command because it is something that we cannot do. Yet the reason we're commanded to be holy is because God is holy. In fact, when you get to the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, 
without holiness, no one will see the Lord. The holiness of God. I want you to notice, secondly, that the people of God are to live out their holiness by loving their neighbors. The people of God are to live out their holiness by loving their neighbors. And so in chapter 17 through 22, we can see that played out, and especially in chapters um, 18 through 20. So the people of God are commanded to be holy, but in what sense? Are the people of God commanded to be holy? Obviously, we have no attribute of deity. We are not transcendent. We are not eternal in nature. Our essential nature is not holy. How in the world can the God who is holy say, you must be holy? If the biblical idea of holiness primarily is separate or other rather than moral, I mean, we can't even live up to the moral purity part, why then does the mandate to be holy, for God is holy, come in a section of text in chapters 18 through 20 that is chock full of moral, religious, ethical instruction? I think chapter uh, uh, 22, or uh, chapter 20, verse 26, helps us with that. So look at chapter 20, verse 26, once again. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine." Primarily, to be holy is to be separated by God so that you belong to Him and to Him alone. We're not to think that we're made holy by our behavior. Now, you can be made unholy by your behavior, but you can never be made holy by your behavior. The section of ethical instruction is emphatically clear that it is God who makes us holy. For example, look in, uh, in chapter 20, verse 8. Chapter 20, verse 8, the very last part of that verse, he says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Now, in this ethical instruction, that is repeated eight times. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. To be sanctified, him sanctifying us, is the idea of making us holy. Now, C.S. Lewis, a person, the do-right, who keeps all the rules and wants to make sure everybody else does too, neither, Lewis says, is New Testament Christianity. There's a third kind of person that Lewis posits, and that is the one who belongs to Christ. The one who is so united to Christ that he finds his own will is melded into the will of Christ and becomes his own. Christianity, then, is not so much doing the rules or what Christ says, we could say, but in loving 
and enjoying Jesus and getting to know him and in walking with him. The more you experience Christ, the more you become like him. In the presence of God, Israel would become holy. And then in this ethical section of instruction, chapters 18 through 20, they are to live out that what God has made them to be, that derived holiness in community with those around them. So this section, this section of ethical, moral instruction, in it we are repeatedly told the Lord makes his people holy. But then you still have to answer the question, right? What of the moral, ethical, Jesus is going to say it's the second greatest command, right? And so in chapter uh, 19, verse 18, here's what he says. You shall love neighbor. Suddenly it's not neighbor. Suddenly it's not rules that regulate the behavior of the people of God. But rather, it is love that regulates the behavior of the people of God. Now, the interesting thing about chapter 19 is it has chapter 18 and 20 on either side of it. And if you count, you would know that that would be the case. But chapters 18 and 20 deal with the sins of Egypt and the sins of Canaan. Now, where are the people of Israel when we come to this text? They are in the wilderness. They're in that in-between spot. They're not in Egypt, and they're not in Canaan, and God has them in the wilderness in order to deal with the Egypt and the Canaan that is sure to infect their souls. So now look at what God says in 18.3. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. The difference is, you shall walk in my statutes. And then, when you look again uh, at chapter 20, Verse 26, it's one of our favorite verses in this text. Notice what he says in the last part of that verse. I have separated you from the peoples. So that's the bookend of chapter 18, verse 3. That's the bookend. I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Chapters 18 and 20 deal with all of the pagan sins that people are exposed to in the world, wherever they are, and it happened at that particular time for Israel in Egypt and then heading to Canaan. But chapter 19 is in between 18 and 20, right? We established that as a fact. And the interesting thing about chapter 19 is it does not deal with the sins of Egypt or the sins of Canaan, but it it is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So on either side, on either side of this exposition of the Ten Commandments, you have, don't you do what Egypt did? 
Don't you do what Canaan does. Those practices are forbidden for the people of God, but rather as the people of God, you don't live according to the practices of a pagan world around you. You're not shaped by that, but rather you are shaped by the revealed Word of God. Notice chapter 19 and see if you don't hear the echo of the Ten Commandments. And then uh, as an assignment, if you don't have anything to do this afternoon, you can pick them out in chapter 19. Now notice in chapter uh, 19, verse 2, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You remember that in the Ten Commandments? You shall keep my Sabbaths. You remember that? I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols. Anybody remember that? It's there. You see, this is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Well, how do you live out holiness then? Chapter 19, verse 18 says, Love your neighbor. Isn't that novel? Seriously? I think we just accept that so readily, although we may not love our neighbor very well, but we know we're supposed to. That sounded strange to ancient ears. If you had said that to an Egyptian or a Canaanite, love your neighbor. He would have said, I, I really don't think you can say that in my language. I don't think it works. Now, probably the most famous section of Leviticus, unfortunately, is chapters 18 and 20 because we deal with all of the sexual, moral, religious disorders of the pagan world. You name it, it's in these chapters. You can read it. It's there. It's just there. Now, the one then, when religion gets out of whack, then human sexuality gets out of whack. The one feeds the other. They become so intertwined that the one begins to be used to justify the other, right? Well, if you weren't so bigoted as the people of God, then you would buy right in to the sexual agenda of modern-day society. But you see, the problem is you're bigoted, you're not loving your neighbor. That's your problem. No, Loving my neighbor is telling my neighbor that's not right. You see, this is what the Lord is telling us in this text. God warned Israel, do not participate in the sexual religious disorder of the nations. That perversion, in fact, was the very reason that God was going to drive the Canaanites out of the land of Canaan. For example, in chapter 18, verse 24, by all these nations I'm driving, or for by all these nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. That is, because of all the, the 
the aberrant sexual religious practices that they're involved in, they have become unclean, and I am driving them out before you. And the warning comes to Israel in verse 28, if you do what they've done, I'll drive you out too. Now, some want to argue that when you look at Leviticus 18, you look at Leviticus 20, that it has no application for today. And especially uh, when you come around, say, to verse 22 of chapter 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is, it is abomination. And then uh, chapter 23, why not throw that in there? And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is a perversion. And so people read that, and it's interesting. They want to pick and choose out of Leviticus 18 and 20 the things that apply and do not apply to today because no one would argue that it's okay to give your daughter to uh, prostitution in a religious temple. Not even the, the worst uh, of the worst in our society would say that's an okay thing to do. People in our society, no matter how perverse they may be sexually, would not say Say that it's okay to offer your babies uh, to Malek and burn them on the altar of Malek while you engage in uh, unheard of sexual practices in some kind of a worship of a God that you've, you've uh, created in your mind. No one would buy into that, but all of a sudden, when we come to these verses, we got to say, but there's an exception. Well, how do you sort that out? Is there an exception? Well, what you have to do is you have to look at the New Testament's use of the law, and it becomes a guide for our understanding of the application of the Old Covenant. If the laws of the Old Covenant are reiterated in the New Testament, then they have New Covenant applications. Everybody understand that? So, dear friend, the New Testament is clear. In the, in the text that Michael read this morning, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It is revealed religion. What God has revealed to mankind, the God of the Bible, not pagan religion, that says, love your neighbor. And the point is, if you love your neighbor, you will not sexually abuse him or her. If you love your neighbor, you will not cheer on the destruction of their children whether it's through political laws that are passed or political movements in a country, but you will stand firm as the people of God and say, no, those things are unloving. Holiness is being separate set apart from this world, belonging to God, both body and soul. 
So we have today, you see it often on the signs of people marching. I don't know what all these people marching do for a living. I don't have time to do that. But they say, my body, my choice. Ladies and gentlemen, we belong body and soul to Christ. And that includes how you express yourself sexually, ethically, and religiously. The Scripture says clearly, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Why did he give you a body? For him. Why? So by his spirit, he can indwell you and walk with you. And you can talk with him. In fact, the scripture says, flee sexual immorality. You know what that means, right? Turn around and run. Don't you know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? If the people of God are to be holy as God is holy, then we have to ask the question, how in the world are they going to be made holy? Number three, being in the light of God's presence makes his people holy. Being in the light of God's presence makes his people holy. Now, if you looked at chapters 23 through 25, you see that these chapters deal with all kinds of Sabbath. There's the weekly Sabbath, the yearly Sabbath, and seven appointed feasts. There's the sabbatical year every seven years. And on the 50th year, there is the Jubilee. But the very heart of these two chapters, again, we have kind of arrangement like 18 through 20. In, uh, in 23 through 25, chapter 24 is in the middle. And it's there for a reason. It helps us understand the meaning of the Sabbaths. And so if we're going to wade through that, we have to know what chapter 24 says. Right in the middle of Sabbath instruction, we have instructions in 24, 1 through 4 about the lamps, or uh, yeah, about the lamps, and then in verses 5 through 9 about the bread, and then this, this narrative story we read in verses 10 through 23 about the blasphemer. The lamps and the bread were in the holy place, not the holiest place, but in the holy place before the veil through which you would gain access into the holiest place. And the text tells us that every evening and morning, that echoes creation, right? Evening and morning was the second day. Every evening and morning, the lamps were tended. And then in verse 8, Sabbath by Sabbath, every Sabbath day, the bread was changed. Now, the bread was brought into the tent of meeting. If you, if you can picture this for a moment. It was positioned on a table in two piles of six loaves 
and the lamp was across the room from it. And the lights of the lamp were adjusted just right in order that they would beam directly on the bread. The bread represents Israel gathered Sabbath by Sabbath in the presence of God. It is the drama of what takes place on the Sabbath day. What is symbolized in the tent of meeting with the lamps and with the bread is the reality of what took place in worship as Israel gathered at the tabernacle on the Sabbath day. Now, what we hear in this text, as I pointed out, is echoes of Eden. There's a message here about the purpose of God in creating the world. In fact, in, in, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 24, you see the word light. In the Pentateuch, other than related to the tabernacle and the lamp particularly, the only other place that the word light is used is in Genesis 1.14 when God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heaven to separate the day from the night. Now there's more. The purpose of the lights, we're told in Genesis 1.14, is they are for signs and seasons, and for days and years. Now the word signs and seasons is the same word that's used, for example, when we start to read about the Sabbath in chapter 23, verse 2, the appointed feast of the Lord that you shall proclaim as a holy convocation. They are my appointed feast. That's the same word as seasons in Genesis 1, 14. And so the creation account then, if you read Genesis 1, ends in the early verses in chapter 2 with Adam participating in the Sabbath rest of God. The point is clear. The cosmos was created to be the meeting place between God and His people. The aim of the tabernacle then is to be a holy space where the people of God gather in God's glorious presence. The Sabbath was not so people could have a day off work. The Sabbath was so that Israel could be made holy. And you can't be made holy without being in the presence of God because holiness in God's presence is contagious. Now, there's another thing that takes place in this drama with the bread and with the lamps and with the blasphemer. And that is, the drama of the bread and lamps is a visible representation of the priestly benediction. In fact, when we get to the end of the service, our benediction will be Numbers chapter 6. If you want to flip over there and look at it quickly, it's the same benediction we had last week, and I intentionally 
I'm using it again this week because it's so perfectly illustrated in the lamps and in the bread in Leviticus 24. And so you see the words, the Lord bless you and keep you, and so on. And then you get, you get down to verse 27, and we're given the reason for the priestly benediction upon the people. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Now you know why the story of the blasphemer is in chapter 24. Because in this dramatic context of God putting his name on his people in the light of his presence, I mean, if you have your name on something, what does it mean? It means it belongs to you. He's claiming them as his own. And it's in that context then that the blasphemer gets in a fight with an Israelite man and he blasphemes the name. And everybody's like, good grief, what do we do? He blasphemed the name. Now it's interesting that the text points out he had an Egyptian father and an Israelite mother. Now, there's no prejudice in the text against Egyptians. But the meaning is simply that Egypt-like disregard for God was in that household. And the son, following the suit of the father, blasphemed the name of God. It brings to mind... Pharaoh, when Moses first appeared before him and said, let God's people go. And he says, I don't know who the Lord is. I don't know his name. The repetition of this phrase, I am the Lord. It's the same thing that God said to Moses when he made himself known to Moses on the mountain. I am the Lord. It is a revelation of who he is. To reveal himself is for him to say his name. Think about it for a moment. God has told us his name. Why did he tell us his name? Well, if, if, if I'm introduced to you, and I'll say, hello, my name is Tom. And you say, hey, Tom, it's nice to meet you. you. You have a moniker. You have something to call me. It's my name. God gave us his name. He didn't give Israel an image. He said, you don't need an image. Because I'm not absent, I'm present. And what you have is my name in order that you may call on me. And when you gather in the presence of God and you call on his name, you are made holy by him. That's right in the middle of the Sabbaths. 
The Sabbaths are, are so important. Adam enjoyed Sabbath rest when he was made in the image of God before the fall, but it was disrupted by the fall. And you don't hear about Sabbath again until you come to the Mosaic Covenant. And then all of a sudden, it's this dominating theme. And in fact, it is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was prophetic. It pointed to something beyond itself. It pointed to a rest to come. It anticipated new creation when all things would be made new. So it's no surprise that when Jesus comes and he's doing what he does on the Sabbath day, he's accused of being a Sabbath breaker, and he says the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. You understand that the New Testament does not reiterate the Sabbath command, but it represents Christ as the fulfillment of the Sabbath that was promised. So when Jesus began his public ministry, he announced the Jubilee, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths, that glorious Sabbath that, by the way, was never practiced. But here he is on the scene saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive, the recovering of sight, and to set at liberty those who are pressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus has proclaimed redemption in this world. So, ladies and gentlemen, Christians, the church doesn't gather on Sunday because it's a Sabbath. We gather on Sunday. It's the first day of the week. That is the eighth day. It is the day of new creation, and we are giving testimony to the inauguration of the new creation in the advent and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the church in its gathering in this world is the present experience of the new creation that will be consummated in the day Jesus comes again. You want to know what new creation is? Just look around you. Now, there's one other point I want to make before we go, and that is, where's all this going? If if just gathering Sabbath by Sabbath in God's presence, I mean, does that, is that aiming for anything? that we would just simply be holy and that's the end of it? Or is there some aim beyond that? And so I want you to notice fourth, the goal of holiness. The goal of holiness. Now we're going to see that in chapter 26, which gives us the blessing and curses of the covenant. And what I want you to focus on specifically is this section of verses 11 through 13, where God says, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. Now think about that. God, holy God, living among us. Now notice what else he says. And I will walk among you and will be your God 
and you shall be my people. That echoes Genesis 3 with God walking with Adam in the cool of the day in the garden. That was not Israel's experience of God in the tabernacle. God was behind the veil. And you dare not approach God. But what's promised, and this is a remarkable thing, what's promised when you you look at the Pentateuch so early in the history of all things redemptive, here it is promised when God says of himself, I'm not content to be behind the veil, but I will come out and I will walk with you. Seriously? How can we survive? The text points to the consummation of the age. It is the promise of walking with God in unveiled divine glory presence of the God who is. It's what old theologians call the beatific vision. That vision when we see God. Isn't that remarkable? That's why John said in 1 John, we don't know what we shall be, but we know this. When we see him, when we see him as he is, we'll be like him. We'll be transformed by that vision of God and never, never again, never again will there be one more struggle with sin. Never again will there be any sorrow or any death or any pain. And you just think, is that, is that pie in the sky by and by that Christians like to talk about? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you, this must be true or there's no hope for us. But here we are, and you're thinking, I feel the pain. And I see death coming. We're in the wilderness, right? And we're being sanctified as we gather together as the people of God by the Spirit of God. We are not what we were. We are not what we will be. But what we are, we are by the grace of God. And so we heard from our reading in the Revelation that one day we'll hear that voice say, Behold, I make all things new. God is making us holy for that day. Now you may think, I'm nowhere close, there's no hope for me. If you knew my sin, if you knew the thoughts of my mind, if you, if you knew what I did last night, if you could walk alongside me in my life, you would testify to there is no hope for me. I want you to know this. In, in, listen, in chapter 25 and in chapter 27, the last chapter of Leviticus, the word redemption is mentioned 29 times. 
Isn't that the kindness of God? I mean, we have this text here, and God's not sitting there saying, won't you just live up to it? No, but he's saying what we sang about in the song. I am the Lord, and I have redeemed you. Do not fear. He's the God of redemption. I believe in redemption. You know why I believe in redemption? One, because the Bible tells me so. But secondly, I have been redeemed. And I just can't believe that God would redeem me. I tell you, I'm going to laugh all the way to heaven. I just can't believe it, Lord. Here here we are. (laughs) He's the God who redeems. And there's so much to redeem, but he never tires of it. And so this morning... We're going to come to the table as a visible testimony. This is a drama that's acted out in front of us of a reality that takes place among us that we have been redeemed. And so if you're a believer in good standing with a local evangelical church, we want to invite you to come to the table with us this morning. But if you're not a believer, we ask you to abstain, not to embarrass you, but for just one more time because we love you as our neighbor. One more time to say you need Christ, you need to be redeemed. And so we just ask you to abstain and when you embrace Christ as your Savior and you're baptized, then you're welcome to come to the table with us. But the way we'll come to the table this morning is as we do every Sunday, the rows will follow one another, starting with the first row to the outside and then back around to the inside. The cups are stacked. The bread is on the bottom. The juice is on the top. And they get stuck sometimes. A little twist. Or if not, move on to the next cup and share some love with your neighbor who gets your cup. No, just give it a little twist. And if it doesn't work, move on. Get another one. Get another one. Go for it. Now, sometimes the two cups, when you get back to your seat, are also stuck. It just shows you God has a sense of humor. Just a gentle little twist. If you man it, you know, and just really bear down, you're going to wear some juice home after church. Just give it a little twist and a tug, and it'll come apart. And then you hold it there until the church family eats and drinks together as we affirm the redemptive grace of the Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to have a moment of silence, and the band's going to come, and then we're going to come to the table. One of our pastors will be in the overflow with trays for the overflow. And so if you bow with me as the band comes.